0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Certainly a familiar passage this time of year. We're going to look at one verse and talk about this verse in context of the world we live in. We'll build on it in the coming weeks as well. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Today... In the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's ask God's Spirit to teach us this morning. Our Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you, God, for the reality that truth sets us free. Sanctify us by your Word, for your Word is truth. Holy Spirit, open our eyes, I pray. Open our hearts. That we'd receive all that you have for us. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. This week's been an interesting week. Uh, as a matter of fact, these past two weeks, there's been a lot of stories in the news that have grabbed my attention. Starbucks, you've heard the big outcry about their cup. And it's just a plain cup now. They don't merry Christmas on it. And a pastor called them out on it, and, and, and at least his opinion. Uh, was attack on Christmas. There's a high school quarterback who was penalized just recently for pointing up to the sky after he called, uh, scored a touchdown. He was penalized 15 yards. He was interviewed and asked if he'd do it again. He said, every time I cross that goal line. Tim Tebow has been ridiculed for his conviction of sexual purity but not so much for a stance on purity as much as how it ties to his relationship with Christ. A lawsuit was filed. It seems the baby Jesus doesn't belong in the Christmas play. And I can go on and on about these stories, but they all point to one thing. They all reference Christ, and it seems he's become a problem. We have a problem with Christ in our culture. And I want to talk about that a little bit, and I said the weeks that follow, the next two weeks, are going to build upon this. This is kind of a, a foundational message for the next couple of weeks, and uh, we encourage you certainly to come back and build upon this. But I want to talk a couple of things about Christ this morning, Christ in the culture in which we live. The first thing we need to note is Christ is unwelcome. You certainly shouldn't be news to you. All the killings, all the terrorist attacks, unfortunately, we've been seeing throughout the world, they should be teaching us of our need for something bigger than ourselves. Apparently, man doesn't have the answer. We're destroying each other. But yet, we have a world hardened to that. And it seems many aren't afraid of talking about God, especially when there's a tragedy. But an important question looms, and we need to ask which God? Is it the God of Islam? The God of Hinduism, is it the God of self, or is it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the risen Savior, the coming Lord? You see, discussing God in the mainstream of our national life really means it's respectable to celebrate many gods in America, except Christ, because many have a problem with Him. Some years ago, in a parliament of world religions, the group most often targeted for criticism were the folks who could not be expected to buy into a unified agenda. As a matter of fact, the banner, or you could say the theme of this particular gathering, was that basically you need to be unified or get out of the way. It was unite or perish. That was the theme. And it dominated the whole sessions of the Parliament of World Religions. Those who belonged to the historic Christian faith were targeted... The most criticism. You see, the gods are on the roll. With utopian plans to unify religions of the world for the common good, they say the time has come. And you and I might ask then what role did Jesus have in more than 700 workshops available during this conference? Well, at times he was admired, quoted, favorably compared to other religious teachers, ancient and modern. He was seen as only one enlightened man among many. We were told he's to be admired as a man of his times. But it was clear in these 700 workshops he was just one among many. He was respected, but he was not worshipped. And what took place in that place is what's taking place in schools, workplaces, communities, people who live next to us, people we work next to. It's the people around us who most likely believe it just doesn't matter what God you pray to, because ultimately every deity is shrouded in a different name. At least that's what we're told over and over and over. But in my opinion, this is not a time to be silent. It's not a time to hide our light in our hearts. But it's a time to let it shine in a hazy atmosphere of religious pluralism. But you and I need to be clear, crystal clear, on who Jesus is and what he claimed. And whether someone believes it or not, we need to be crystal clear. If you go to Second Peter, or first Peter I should say, chapter two, first Peter chapter two, verse four through nine. It seems Peter wanted us to understand some things about Jesus, how he'd be viewed. And how his ministry would affect people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4-9, through nine, uh, Peter writes, "...and coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, "...behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone." A precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And if you look at those verses, there are some phrases. Verse 4, He'd be rejected by men. Verse 7, He's a rejected stone. Verse 8, He's a stumbling stone. And Racine in the, the landscape of America, and the words, Happy Holidays, Season, Greetings, they're safe, acceptable terms. But if you bring Jesus into it, one thing's clear, he's not welcome. He's rejected by men, he's a rejected stone, he's still a stumbling stone. Jesus is not welcome, but all the other gods, that's a different story. They're all welcome. But Jesus comes with a different agenda. He might be unwelcome, but we need to make no mistake, he's unequaled. Because standing in the way of grand plan of religious unity is the person of Jesus Christ. He stands alone. And sadly, a growing number of those who call themselves Christians have begun to redefine Jesus in an attempt to fit in with other faiths. So the key question you and I need to ask this morning and in the coming weeks, does Jesus belong on the same shelf with Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, Allah, and a plethora of other gods? And it's important that you and I understand there's three ways really we relate to Jesus in regard to this question in our culture. One is pluralism. Pluralism is the direct assertion that we must accept all religions as equal. Pluralism says Christ is only a man. He's a prophet. He's one of a variety of options. In our culture, not necessarily a better option at that. It would be like going to the store... And if you go now that you see all these toys, there's all kinds of toys on the shelves. Some appeal to this person, some, guy li- some kid likes the Legos, the other one, other young lady likes the Barbie dolls, and, and so all these toys are numerous, and they appeal to uh, some in different ways, and we're being told that, that Christ is one toy on the shelf of many. And He might appeal to you, but not necessarily to this one, and that's OK because all toys are valid. So we're told. But in this viewpoint, Christ is variously interpreted, but he's always stripped of his deity. Pluralism asserts no religion can claim superiority, or no religion can sit in judgment on another. And you've probably heard the comments. These are pluralistic comments. One comment might be, you're into Christ, I'm into Buddha. We all have to choose a religion that's best for us. Or, I love Christ as much as you do, but I don't think he's the only way to God. God would never limit the way to heaven to one person. my God 's more inclusive than that, or maybe you 've heard this. I think that much of the New Testament contains mythology i don 't believe these things happen. You see it 's just a matter of interpretation, so it doesn 't really matter what religion you belong to it 's all a matter of your interpretation. or maybe you 've heard this. I think all religions of the world are essentially the same. Why should we argue about the peripheral matters?. <laughs> Or maybe this one, I I haven't left my Christianity, I've just moved beyond it to something deeper. I no longer emphasize religion, but I'm into spirituality, i.e. I'm into pluralism. I'm into the idea, people would say, that we must accept all religions as equal, and Christ is just a man. There's a second common stance called inclusivism. Inclusivism says We need to be open to other religions. This certainly began back in the 18th century Enlightenment, where Christ, in this way, may still be unique, but he does not have a sole possession of truth. He might have some, but he doesn't have the sole possession of truth. Inclusivism stresses that only through religious dialogue among the diversity of world religions can we come into an understanding of the truth. In other words, every religion, we need to make sure we bring it all together to get some kind of fabric of truth. That's what inclusivism says. In other words, we decide really what's true. There's no objective standard. Each religion brings something to the table. You might not have known that this past October, this religious parliament met again in Salt Lake City. The Parliament of World Religions offered many workshops, and I'm going to give you an example of just one of them. There were many like this. This particular one is called the Presence and Engagement Christianity and Religious Plurality. Here's what the module descriptor was. This module is designed to give students a critical overview of Christian approaches to religious plurality and to enable an in-depth experience of another faith tradition in a contemporary urban context. Well, that might sound semi-innocent at this point. But I want you to hear what the learning outcomes are. By the end of the module, this class hopes that students will be able to do these things. Demonstrate a broad understanding of the variety of Christian theological and spiritual approaches to religious plurality and an ability to use them reflectively to inform their own approach. That's a scary thought. Another one was to show an understanding of the importance of engagement with religious plurality for the development of contemporary theology and ministry. Another learned outcome would it be evaluate the possibilities for spiritual enrichment through engagement with other faith traditions? And I don't know if you picked up on the fact, because there are several other classes like this. It's geared towards those who are Christians to get in line with the religious plurality. Nowhere does it say Hinduism in light of religious plurality. Nowhere does it say Buddhism. There are no classes for Buddhism in light of religious plurality. It's just Christians. Why are Christians targeted? Well, we're told to get in line, to get in line with all the other religions. Example Hinduism believes in 300,000 gods. 300,000. Most devotees revere or worship a few favorites, but they respect them all. And if you ask how these gods peacefully coexist, the answer is that they only represent an impersonal force, Brahman, the soul of the cosmos. You and I are told we need to get in line with that. We need to get in line up ourselves with this religion. We're told that the Shinto religion, found primarily in Japan, is animistic. In other words, they believe gods reside in all creatures, trees, soil, or objects. You and I are told we need to get in line with that. We're being told that these gods, although they're indifferent to morality, seldom offended, believe sin does not exist, that you and I are to get in line with the Shinto religion. We're told to get in line with the Buddhists who do not believe in a God or gods. Matter of fact, the monks insist when they pray, they pray only to themselves. We're told we need to get in line with that. The Parliament of World Religions in this class specifically has a learned outcome that's told you and I were to get in line with the Islam religion. This monotheistic, believe in one God, which isn't bad at that point. But this deity is not triune. Far removed from mankind is the God of Islam. Allah is simply a tribal deity of Muhammad. Muhammad elevated him to this position of supreme ruler. And we're told that Allah is some mystic force out there with conflicted thoughts, provides no assurance come judgment day. You and I are told we need to line up with that. Parliament of World Religions, matter of fact, has classes designed for Christians to line up. Because we live in an inclusive society. But there's a third stance you and I need to be aware of. It's a significant stance. It's exclusivism. Exclusivism says and maintains that God has revealed himself only in Christ. Thus all other religions are therefore incomplete, misleading if they're not centered on the person of Jesus Christ and who he claimed to be. See, exclusivism does not conflict with the freedom of religion. And here is where this word tolerance is such a buzzword. Christians are told to be intolerant, but are they? Think about it for a minute. You could say there's legal tolerance, the right for everyone to believe in whatever faith or none at all. No one should be coerced. Every Christian I think in here would agree with that. A legal tolerance, a social tolerance, a commitment to respect all persons, even those we vigorously disagree with them, because we're all imperfect and... To be honest, we're all created in the image of God. I don't think any Christian would have a problem with that. But where the issue comes in, where the Christian's attacked as being intolerant, is the idea that we avoid vigorous debate about the truth. This uncritical tolerance says every point of view is valid, except the point of view that disagrees with all the other points of view. That's where Christ comes into the picture, in a Christian. We would agree there's a freedom to adopt whatever religion one wishes should be the right in all countries. But as a Christian, a born-again believer, we recognize and respect freedom of religions, but we do not compromise who Christ is. That's the key. And it's at that point we're considered intolerant or exclusive. Because as a Christian, we believe that other religions might help people, bad people become better people, but there's only one perspective. There's only one who makes dead people alive. And that's Christ. And on that, we're exclusive. Because he was exclusive. And while there's not an exclusiveness and the wideness of God's mercy, Jesus is exclusive in his claim to be the only solution for sin. That he is the only way to God is an exclusive claim. Colossians 1, I'd like you to go there. I've often had this passage discussed with my Jehovah Witness friends. Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20. It's all about Christ and that He's incomparable. Listen to the description. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, merging Jesus into the equality with other gods flies in the face of his rightful claim to preeminence. Try to downsize Jesus after reading that. Try to put the spin on Jesus. You can't. Because his claims are exclusive. Consider all of what the Bible teaches Without Jesus, the storyline of the Bible disappears. From Genesis to Revelation, it all points to Christ as a Redeemer and the coming King. Without Jesus, guilt and shame remain because it's only in Christ in which we confess our sins to we find Him faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 1 John 1, 1.9 Without Jesus, there's no hope of getting to God. 1 Timothy 2.5 There's one mediator between God and men. Who? The man, Christ Jesus. 5, John 5.23 Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Without Jesus, there's no hope of heaven. Acts 4, 12, salvation is found in no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. John fourteen, 14 we're told without Jesus you and I have no help for today. John 15, 11 tells us without Jesus we have no joy. The scriptures teach without Jesus we have no guide, no ultimate friend, intimate friend. We, we still remain a soul that's barren, desperately lost and empty without Christ. Because the testimony of scripture is Jesus is unequaled. Matter of fact, only Jesus comes with an exclusive claim that says, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He may be unwelcome, but make no mistake, he's unequaled. But I wonder if Jesus is welcome in your life. Is he welcome in your home? Is he welcome in your plans? Is he welcome in your kitchen? Is he welcome in your singing? Or have you too set him aside? Set him aside so there be no more conflict? Maybe set him aside for a little more peaceful gatherings? Is he behind the gifts this Christmas or will he be preeminent above them? You and I need to make sure first as followers of Jesus he's welcome in our home. And by welcome that you and I proclaim he's also unequaled. But there's a third thing about following Jesus, and Jesus made abundantly clear, and that he's uncompromising. You see, to be told Jesus is unwelcome is to be told, to, is being, telling me to give up the treasure of my life. To be told Jesus is unwelcome is to be told I'm unwelcome. It's telling me to keep Jesus to myself. When a culture says Jesus is unwelcome, he, culture's telling you, you're unwelcome. It's telling you to hide the treasure of your life. Maybe you haven't thought about that before. It's to to tell you to compromise. But because he's unequal, we're to be uncompromising. We're to be uncompromising because he is uncompromising. Jesus didn't talk with folks and they say, hey, we kind of disagree with you, Jesus, about your statement that you're not the truth. We never see Jesus going, oh man, I'm sorry to offend you. Maybe I should reword that. Or maybe I should water that down. No. Jesus made the statement, I and the Father are one. They pick up stones to stone him. Jesus didn't stutter and say, I didn't quite mean it like that. He was uncompromising in his proclamation of who he was. Because Jesus understands he's unequaled. And when you're unequaled, you don't compromise. Jesus was uncompromising and he calls you and I to be uncompromising. If you go to Luke again, this is a unique account. Sometime after his birth, Jesus was brought to a temple and presented in the temple. So we're picking that up in verse 25 of, through verse 34 of Luke chapter 2. You should notice noticed what's said about Jesus. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, i.e. the Messiah, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, this is an amazing moment, by the way. Can you imagine if you're Simeon and you have this baby in your hands? Look what he proclaims and look what he recognizes. Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen... Thy salvation. What salvation? The baby he's holding. That's quite a statement. My eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which are being said about him. But then look at Simeon says, He blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. We'll stop there. You see, this child would mark both the failure and the recover of many in Israel. He'd be a figure who's misunderstood and contradicted. You see, Jesus would be like a stone over which men fall and perish. No one would be able to take a neutral attitude toward Christ ever again. Many would resist and refuse to accept him. And Jesus is uncompromising. And he demands a response. Erwin Lutzer's right. He's not neutral among other gods. A couple of years ago, there was an editorial in a London paper I came across, and I don't remember exactly where I came across it, but it was unique because it was in the current environment of the the spin on Jesus. Here's what this article said. It got me kind of my blood going a little bit in a good way. Here's what this author said, this editorialist. The fact is we miss the whole point of Christmas story if we try to make the infant Jesus fit our agenda rather than accusiating to his agenda. For this, Jesus would not forever remain the meek and mild baby. According to Gabriel, he would be great, perfectly holy, the unique son of God, the Jewish Messiah, the one and only Savior of humanity. Try as we we might, this author says, to reduce the nativity to a symbol of generic human love and peace Among persons of differing belief, it simply does not work. Because essential to the Christmas story are claims concerning who the child is. Unsettling, necessarily, offensive claims to ancients and moderns alike. From conception to the grave, the controversial Jesus scandalized people and thinking human beings will continue to be affronted by his radical, seemingly divisive mission which climaxed in his death on the cross and which mandates from us a decision whether of faith or cynicism. Political correctedness, other readings of the Christmas story are just damnable, despicable distortions of God's most significant intervention in human history. Could it be this editorialist, somewhere on the other end of a computer keyboard, decided it was time to stick up for Jesus? In the midst of plurality and certain in England, a lot of things being put forth by Jesus, This editorialist took a stand. And the essence of his article, as I'm sure you picked up, is Christ is uncompromising. His claims are uncompromising. It causes you and I to ask a question, I think an important one. Is it possible to embrace Christ privately and at the same time to deny the broad implications of his mission? Could you and I value Jesus in our songs of worship and then set aside him for a greater cultural cause? Some important questions. Absolutely not. Because he's uncompromising, as is his message. No one in the early church in Acts had the impression at all Jesus was just simply a private affair. Matter of fact, they took the message to the streets, faced great persecution because Christ was uncompromising, as was his message. Matter of fact, Jesus even got so forward as to warn his followers and said, the world will reject you, indeed even hate you. Why? Because of Him. Because of Him. Because He's uncompromising. But you and I need to realize He's the only one qualified to save. And next week we're really going to look at that. And because He's the only one qualified to save, He must be uncompromising. He must be. And because He's uncompromising, any commitment to Him demands to be uncompromising. I was reading a couple weeks ago in my devotions, Matthew 5. And I don't think I'd ever picked up on this. Verses 11 through 16. Sometimes you read verses and sometimes you forget what was right before it. Matthew 5, 11 through 16, the context is, is in the midst of being insulted for following Jesus, these verses come on. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice. Be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. In other words, in the context of you and I being ridiculed for our faith, in the context of you and I being insulted for being exclusive in our message, or I should say holding out the exclusive message of Christ, in light of that context, we're supposed to be salt and light. Not just when things are fine. We're not salt and light just when everyone's agreeing with us, or when we're in a group of people who don't disagree with us. In the context of people who disagree with us, context of a culture who doesn't welcome Jesus, it's in that context you and I are to be salt and light. That's important. Gene Edward North in his World Magazine article wrote this. He said, the day has come when faithful Christians better be ready to become unpopular. To say Jesus is the only way is to bring the wrath of a culture demonizing Christians as intolerant, which is what I've been trying to get across, Bill Bright certainly was right when he said, the defining issue of followers of Jesus Christ of our generation is this. What are we going to do with Jesus in a world that either doesn't want him, as he claims to be, or wants to put its spin on him to yield a harmless, sedate Jesus who threatens no one? That's the issue for you and I. What are we going to do? And that's the applications I'd like to close with. This is a call to us for all of life, but specifically for this next month. Stand up for the authentic Jesus. Not the cultural one. Stand up with an unflinching, unflinching allegiance. To the person and mission of Jesus Christ. We must speak up for Christ. As he is. With love. And certainly with clarity. With courage. Refuse this Christmas especially to be silent. Why? That's not just any baby. In this story. I began the. Message by talking about Luke chapter two eleven. That baby is Christ the Lord, the Savior. That's uncompromising message. You and I need to stand up for the authentic Jesus. Christmas is about Jesus. By the way, do your friends know that? Your friends know why you celebrate Christmas? How about your neighbors? How about your classmates? Do they see you stand up for the authentic Jesus? Or do you just kinda of blend in with the, the holidays? Sometimes that's a convicting question, isn't it? Stand up for the authentic Jesus. We must. Number two, give careful attention to living for Jesus. If the message in person of Jesus is uncompromising, doesn't it stand to reason? So should our behavior. Should line up with Jesus' life and what he's commanded us and called us to. Does your life contradict the message of Christ? Too many people say Jesus is the way, but then they'll say, I want to live my own way. That's a contradiction. You need to give careful attention to the way we live our life and to live for Christ. And three, be an available conduit of Christ's love. You see, a watching watching world can't deny Christ's love and action. It's them they fall, it's before that they fall silent. When we live like Jesus, when we love like Jesus... It provides an opportunity to speak up for Jesus with great clarity. And when we love like Jesus, he remains in the forefront of our lives. So who can you reach out to with the love of Christ in Jesus' name this next month, especially? Because all around us we have people who are confused with the gods of sensuality, the gods of power, materialism, self-indulgence, and all they've found is great disappointment and emptiness. And as they look around, they see a nasty, troubled world. And they long for a better world. And you know, I have a message that Jesus has a better place, a prepared place. And they need to hear that. And so, speak truth. Speak it often. Speak it humbly. Speak it in compassionate tones. Speak wisely and patiently in ways that honor Jesus. Speak prayerfully. Speak it to your own heart. Speak about Christ on planes. Speak about Christ on buses. Speak about Christ to your children, to your classmates. Speak it and stand up fearlessly. But do speak it and do stand up because the message is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. That's the message you and I get to proclaim. It's a privilege, the message about Christ. And when all is said and done, when all the religious followers of this world and all the gods line up, here's what will take place. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He might be unwelcome, but he's certainly unequaled. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer this week has been there be a rising conviction in your people to no longer be silent. Lord, not to attack people, not to be a fighter necessarily, but to be your people who just stand up for who you claim to be and what you've taught. To not compromise, but to lovingly hold out the word of truth, the message of salvation that will save people. Help us to do that. Help us to do it winsomely. Help us to be, do it with great discernment. The Lord, help us to be uncompromising. And to trust you with the results. Please help us to be aware we might be rejected by some. Might face disagreement, even very anger. But Lord, help us lovingly stand upon your truth. And help us, Lord, to know unequivocally that one day every knee will bow before you. And might it be our tongues that confess you are Lord, our Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for that, Jesus. Might you be preeminent, this next month especially, in our prayers, in our songs, in our celebrations, in our words, in every way, shape, or form, might you be honored and praised. In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen.